The Bible reading today is Psalm 95, and you can follow along in today's church leaflet. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Thanks very much, Andrew. Well, um, as I said, uh, it's a real delight to be here with you again. I think the last time I was here was in October 2019, and I think I've just obliterated all of 2020, so um, it is great to be back here again. Uh, can I ask you please uh, to grab that handout that Andrew referred to? It's got both the Bible reading on the front and also an outline on the back. And you'll discover today there are a couple of discussion questions that at different points in this talk I'm going to pause and ask you just to uh, turn to the people around you and, and reflect on some of the issues that I'm raising for us. Um, so if you don't have one of those handouts, please do grab one from the back. I'm sure the ushers will bring you around one if you pop your hands up as well. So that will be very useful for you. Um, as we come to God's word, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. So we pray this morning as we turn to it and sit under it, we pray that you would speak to us through it, point us towards your son and how he's worthy of all praise and give us uh, the incentive and the desire and the ability to live lives that bring honour to him. Amen. Well, Christians often talk about having a relationship with God. Christians often talk about having a relationship with God. And uh, if you're wondering what that means or what that looks like in practice, uh, Psalm 95 is going to tell us a little bit of what it looks like to have a relationship with God. Uh, in fact, in the passage that was read to us, it's going to describe two things that Christians do about the way in which we live and then one thing that we don't. And that'll give you an outline is in terms of what we're going to look at today. If you're here as someone who's not a Christian person, who's not a believer, then I hope that by the end of this you'll get a bit of a sense as to what it means to be a Christian, someone who has a relationship with God. If, on the other hand, you're here as a believer, and at this point I suppose I'm thinking particularly of the members of this church, uh, perhaps this is a good opportunity for a checkup, for a reflection, a self-diagnosis on the state of your relationship. 
If you look at the handout, you'll see that on one side there is the passage that's been printed there. In the little box near the bottom, just above the pictures, um, is, a, I guess, a, a an overview of how I want us to look at the Psalms over these coming weeks. I said at the start they're a little bit unusual in some ways, uh, not only in terms of their style, but also the time at which they were written. So most of the Psalms are composed uh, you know, sort of around about 1,000 years BC. So they're very old, and at one level they don't really seem to connect with us today. I think the key to reading the Psalms is to look to see how they describe what God is like uh, before we ask the question of how we ought to live. And there's some reasons I've given there underneath as to why that's the case. But if in the end they're primarily descriptions of God and his character, that really ought to be our starting point. So if you turn over then on the handout, you'll see what I want to do. Firstly, what Psalm 95 says about God. Secondly, then how it points us to Jesus. And then finally, what it asks of us today. And uh, you'll notice there some discussion questions along the way. Well, firstly, what does Psalm 95 say about God? Uh, the first thing that it says about uh, God, and in particular the way in which Christians relate to him, is that he is someone who is worthy of song. Come with me uh, to verses 1 through 5. I'll read it again, just on the other side of the handout. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song, for the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. One of the first things that Christians do in their relationship with God is that they sing for joy to him. They sing for joy to the Lord. You saw that there in verse 1. In fact, uh, it goes on to say, shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Those two ideas obviously are similar and they're repetitive, they're emphatic in many ways. And that point gets hammered home in verse 2. So let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. This is a reasonably extravagant way to begin a psalm. So of course it asks the question, why? Why is God worthy of such celebration, of such praise? Well, in verses 3 through 5, and I've been indented it there so that you can see this, uh, the songwriter goes on to give the justification. Why we sing for joy to the Lord. Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God. He's the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Verses 3, 3 to 5 say that we sing for joy to the Lord because he is the great God, the great king above all gods. He is universally supreme, resplendent in power. He is the maker and sustainer of everything. And so for his creation, he is worthy of praise. And notice the language there in verses 4 and 5. They stretch from one end of the spectrum to the other. It talks about the depths of the earth all the way up to the mountain peaks. Both belong to him. Or in verse 5, he made both the sea and the dry land. And I suppose perhaps the most vivid imagery of all in verses 4 to 5 is that uh, the songwriter tells us that God's hands made it. That the depths of the earth are held in his very hand. Uh, I think at this point of that very famous and profound song that uh, even though it's not sung, sung, sung much these days, we'll all recall, he's got the whole world in his hands. 
hence the picture on the other side, uh, that description that God is so majestic that all of creation fits within his palm. How much can you hold in your hands? I think at this point of a child uh, with a hands full of candy at Halloween, and that feels extravagant, but this is all of creation just in the palm of his hand. No wonder then that the songwriter will call us to sing for joy, to shout aloud, to extol him with music and song because he is so majestic. And yet, of course, if he were just powerful but not good, you'd actually be nervous. If he were powerful but not good, you'd be nervous. He'd be a tyrant or a dictator or a despot. And so that's, of course, the concern that the psalmist is going to next address. Uh, in fact, there was a hint of it in verse 1. Uh, he's described as the rock of our salvation, someone before whom we come with thanksgiving. So presumably his power is for our good. But come with me then to the second part of the psalm, verses 6 through 7, because uh, here we're going to see the second thing that Christians do. Now, I feel like this keeps dropping in and out. Is that right? Shall I switch to this? Okay. All right, point, uh, second point then, Christians bow down in worship. Pick it up with me in verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, once again, the songwriter has uh, laid out this second verse, if I can put it that way, in the same way as he has the first. Uh, he describes what we are to do, and then he gives a reason why. So start with what we're to do. Verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before our maker. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Here's what Christians do. They bow down in worship, in humility, before our maker. Now, one of the reasons I suspect why the songwriter has headed in this direction is because if the opening verse, verses 1 through 5, remind us that worship is meant to be joyful and celebratory and ecstatic... Verse 6 is kind of a hedge, a qualification, a warning against us ever being too casual in the presence of an awesome and majestic God. The imagery here in verse 6, bow down and kneel, bow down and kneel, it's an imagery of homage, of submission. It describes the choice that we make to live and if necessary, die for the monarch's glory and not for our own. That's the reason why I've given that other little picture in the middle at the bottom of the page there. It brings to mind for me the image of a knight kneeling before his or her sovereign, committing him or herself to their glory and not his own. Uh, that, of course, is the prayer that Jesus calls us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here's what Christians do. We kneel before our maker. But again, the songwriter is going to give us the reason why. And, of course, this comes in verse 7, although... Once again, it's a little bit surprising. 
Verse 7, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the flock of his care. Uh, we're told that he is our maker, so he's someone before whom we are to kneel. And that's the reason why, in some ways, you could call this psalm a psalm about the God who made everything. He has made even us, and so, by definition, he is worthy of our praise. Actually, I think there's something significant about this as we think about our interaction with the world around us. I think this is actually a pretty powerful testimony and witness uh, to why God is worthy. It's saying that if we have been made by a supremely powerful maker, then it stands to reason that we've been made for a purpose. We are more than just upgrades on previous versions. But do you notice what verse 7 goes on to say about this God, the one before whom we kneel? Verse 7, he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. The flock under his care. Uh, this, of course, is a delightful picture. It describes us as being underneath a shepherd. A shepherd. Uh, to complement that picture of a great king that we have already seen. And as I've thought about the difference in those two pictures, well, actually, the one of the shepherd is meant to be, I think, deeply comforting and reassuring. You see, a king, that brings to mind a regent who might fiercely brandish their royal scepter as the symbol of their power, whereas the shepherd, well, perhaps it's the shepherd leaning on his crook, tenderly knowing all his sheep by name. There's a different image at stake here, I think. It's reminding us of the great delight we have of submitting not just to a monarch, but of finding shelter in the arms of the shepherd. The one who goes before us, who stands in front of us, who fights off the wild animals, who leads us to green pastures and still waters and shelter from the storm. So, assuming you're okay with being likened to a sheep, and that's, of course, the downside of this image, but assuming you're okay with being likened to a sheep, Psalm 95 is saying that our most basic identity as God's people is not as a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher. It's not as a parent or a child or a friend. Our most basic identity as God's people is as the people of his pasture. So when someone asks you, who are you? What do you do? Psalm 95's lovely answer is, I'm a sheep because my shepherd takes care of me. Well, however the image or metaphor works, uh, the point I think is clear. Our maker has so much power, he has the whole world in his hand, and yet he chooses to use it for his people. Or to put it slightly differently, our God is both our maker and our saviour and redeemer. Well, what I want to do at this point is I want to pause for a moment, and you'll see that there on your handout, I've given you a discussion question. Let me read out the question, then I'll tell you what I'd like you to do. Uh, discussion. Being in a relationship with God means both extolling him with music and song 
and kneeling before our maker in humble submission. So of those two things, which do you find easier or tend towards and why? And what would help you to do both more willingly? Now the question is asking us to reflect on the fact that those different images resonate differently for different people and we tend in particular directions, but both are true of God. So perhaps for a moment, before we push on, I'm just going to ask you to talk with those around you. Now, ideally, I'd like you to talk with people who you don't share a household with, um, but I get that we're all sort of spaced out a bit. So do what you can, just for a couple of minutes, talk about that question, and then I'll come back and we'll um, see how the psalm wraps up. Okay, over to you. Two minutes, go for it. Thirty more seconds. Okay, thanks very much, everyone. Thank you. I really appreciate you being willing to take the time to try and think about how these words actually apply to us and, you know, not just one ear in one ear and out the other. Uh, we're trying to reflect this morning on what Psalm 95 says about what it means to have a relationship with God. And the first two parts have talked about how we sing for joy to him, we bow down in worship before him. But the psalm is going to take a bit of an unexpected uh, turn for its conclusion. And so I'm going to ask you to look with me uh, back again at verses seven, uh, second half of verse 7 through to the end. Uh, we've seen two big do's. Here's what we do. Now we're going to see something that Christians don't do. So verse 7. Today, if only you'd hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me and they tried me, though they'd seen all that I, what I did. So for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. From two big do's that Christians are involved in to one big don't, and it feels like a pretty abrupt change of gear, doesn't it? 
Uh, to ask the obvious question then, why, after all the upbeat positivity in the first seven verses, does a song that begins with such joyful praise of our wonderful maker and sustainer, why does it conclude with such dire and somber warnings? Because it feels like it's come out of the blue, doesn't it? Well, actually, I think the answer is pretty blunt. The answer, learn from our ancestors' mistakes, don't repeat them. Learn from our ancestors' mistakes, don't repeat them. You see, when Psalm 95 urges us not to harden our hearts nor test God, it's reminding us of some of the darkest days in Israelite history. It's actually a reference to the episode in Exodus 17, if you want to look it up later, in Exodus 17. What's happened here is that literally moments after the Exodus, that great event when God rescues an entire nation from slavery in Egypt, takes a million men plus women and children across the Red Sea, feeds them manna and quail in the desert, what do they do? They complain. They complain about the lack of water at Meribah and Massah. And that incident in Exodus 17 actually is the start of well, to be frank, 40 more years of constant whinging and complaining, incessant grumbling about the timing of God's gracious, undeserved plan to take them into the promised land. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, you know what, if Psalm 95 stopped at verse 7, it would be a great song evangelistically. It'd be a great thing to show someone who's not a Christian about why God is excellent and why they ought have a relationship with him if only i could just leave out the second part and yet i think that the second part of psalm 95 tells us that god holds us accountable for our failings and that demonstrates his love for us I'll say that again. God holds us accountable for our failings and that demonstrates his love for us. And I say that because in the end, the only thing more discouraging than God judging us is God not caring about us. That would be apathy. And I think actually that hurts even more. Now, even if you buy that argument, you might be thinking, well, surely God's punishment for hardening our hearts is harsh and unjust and unfair. I mean, they complain about the water at Meribah in Exodus 17, then they get 40 years in the desert, and all of them die. Well, fair concern. Let me say in response to that, do remember that God gives that generation exactly what they ask for. He gives them exactly what they ask for. They stand on the edge of the promised land. They look in. They see that the inhabitants there are fierce and powerful. They refuse to enter the land, even though God has told them that he will give it to them. Even though God has just rescued them from slavery, parted the Red Sea, so probably he's got some force on his side. But they say, if we go in, we will die. So they refuse to enter. And as a result, well, God gives them exactly what they ask for. Every one of the fighting men die in the desert. 
What Psalm 95 does, I think, is it reminds us that God doesn't always spare us the consequences of our sin. He doesn't always spare us the consequences of our sin. In fact, we'll never know what the boundaries are if we're not told that we have crossed them. And yet what's most remarkable about the way Psalm 95 finishes is not that an entire generation perishes in the desert. What's incredible is that their children enter in. Did you notice how it finishes there in verse 10 of Psalm 95? For 40 years I was angry with that generation. Despite all that this nation has done, still God bestows undeserved grace and mercy. That generation falls, but not their children. And in fact, under Joshua, the next generation will be the one who enter into God's rest. Uh, On your handout, I printed there for you this great passage from Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 verse 4, this is from the Ten Commandments. This is the second one there. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Despite the failings of any one generation, still God's promises continue. And they continue even to us today. Well, there are a few reflections on what Psalm 95 says about God, what it means for us to have a relationship with him. Uh, More quickly then, let me just talk briefly about how it points us towards Jesus and then what it might ask of us today. So point two on your handout uh, near the bottom, how Psalm 95 points us to Jesus. Uh, There are, of course, many ways in which Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. Uh, There are many ways in which Jesus shows us what God is like in entirety, Uh, For example, he is the only one who does not succumb to temptation. So, for example, Matthew chapter 4. But I think given what we've seen in Psalm 95, perhaps the most obvious way in which Jesus shows us what God is like is the way in which Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd to us who are the flock under his care. So put it there on your handout, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. Well, what Psalm 95 says about God, how it points us to Jesus Let me wrap up then with what Psalm 95 asks of us today. What does this song ask of us today? Uh, Well, to kind of state the obvious from Psalm 95, uh, and here's the refrain I'd like ringing in your ears as we finish, it is so easy to harden our hearts. It is so easy to harden our hearts. Uh, Which is why I think Psalm 95 warns us that it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Did you notice there in verse uh, verse 7? Today. 
It's a problem to be addressed today, not deferred or delayed till tomorrow, not put off until you've got time. It's a problem that's imminent and urgent. It needs to be dealt with today. Do not harden our hearts. And I presume the reason why it's so important is because even if you're doing well at this very moment, every new day brings a temptation to distract or a threat to attack. Every new day brings a temptation that might distract us or a threat that might attack us. So, for a couple of moments, what I'd like you to do, again, back in those little groups, you'll see the discussion question down the bottom. Threats to attack you or temptations to distract you? Which are you most susceptible to and why? Which would most likely cause you to harden your heart? Okay, a couple of minutes, just with little groups around you, then I'll call us back together. Thirty more seconds. Thank you. I'll uh, gather us back together. It's so easy to harden our hearts, which is perhaps a reason why Psalm 95 is a song that's meant to be sung corporately, not just individually. It's meant to be sung by all believers when we gather together. I suspect partly because uh, for any one of us at any point in time, our particular circumstances could cause us to be distracted, to feel like we're overwhelmed under threat. And sometimes what we need is the encouragement or the refocus from a good Christian sibling. It's so easy, though, to harden our hearts. And so in many ways, I think the big question is why? 
Why do we do so? Why do we harden our hearts, especially given what Psalm 95 has already told us? Everything about him, verses 1 through 5 says, resistance to God is futile. He has the whole world in his hands. Everything that he has done for us in verses 6 and 7, he is the good shepherd. Why would we ever turn away from him? And yet still we do. So why? Well, here's my theory. My theory is that when God doesn't exercise his care for us in exactly the way in which we want him to, and when things don't turn out exactly the way in which we think they should, invariably we start to think, but I know better than God. One of the sad things for me is that I think many Christians have misunderstood what a relationship with God is like. Sadly, I think many Christians think that, and there's this great Bible verse that so many of us know. It's from Romans 8. It goes something like this. God works in all good things for, those, for the good of those who love him. Except it doesn't say that. It doesn't say God works in all good things for the good of those who love him. It just says God works in all things, whether they're very good or terribly bad. Still, he works all things for the good of those who love him. And I think because we have the wrong expectation of God, is there any great surprise that we're disappointed or devastated when things don't turn out the way in which we think they should? Now, please don't mishear me. It's quite okay to ask questions of God. Uh, in any good relationship, it's two-way communication. I say that because, of course, on the cross we see Jesus. Jesus asking questions of great bewilderment and confusion of his Father. It's okay to ask questions. But in the end, what matters is why, and if I can put it this way, what matters is your tone of voice. Are your questions out of anger? out of spite or defiance? Or are they out of a genuine desire to understand him better? That you might know how his ways are better, recognising that none of us ever see the full picture, but trusting that our good shepherd, who has already laid down his life for us, really does have our best interests at heart. Psalm 95, I think, is calling us to have an orientation, a disposition, a tendency towards, from verse 1, thanksgiving for all that we have, not merely discontentment and bitterness about those things that we do not. It's so easy to harden our hearts. And yet... And here I'll finish. Uh, the best antidote, dare I say, the best vaccine for what we might call coronary calcification, it comes in Jesus' very words in John chapter 10. We saw them a few moments ago. My sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice, says Jesus. At the end of the day, for a Christian, a relationship with God 
means listening as he calls to you. Uh, Even if you're not quite sure where you're going or the state of the road ahead. Perhaps this last image will work for you. Imagine, if you were, if you will, that you were in a dark tunnel. Now, apologies if you're claustrophobic. This is not a good way to finish the talk, but just go with me. Imagine you're in a dark tunnel. A relationship with God is Jesus saying, come this way. Hear my voice and just keep walking towards me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. We thank you for your son who speaks to us in all our need. We thank you for Jesus, the good shepherd. And we pray that in this week ahead, you'd free us from distraction. You'd strengthen us against threat. And you'd enable us to hear his voice knowing that he loves us. Amen.